Welcome to the Bicom podcast. I'm Jack M. Jackman, Bicom Research Associate, and I'm delighted to be joined today for a discussion on Israel's domestic politics and international relations by Professor Jonathan Reinhardt. Jonathan is the head of the Department of Political Studies at Bar Ilan University. He received his PhD in international relations from the London School of Economics and Political Science and was previously the Schusterman Visiting Professor of Israeli Politics at the George Washington University in Washington, DC. His research focuses on US-Israeli relations, Israeli foreign policy, and the role of political culture in foreign policy. Jonathan, welcome and thank you for being with us today. Thank you. I'd like to start with a, with a general question. Most times are dramatic times in Israeli politics, one way or another, but there's no doubt that the present moment is especially significant. Is this as divided as you've known Israelis since Oslo? Does it outstrip even that? So I think there's a, a, a big difference in that in the 1990s, the Israeli public as a whole was deeply divided over the issue of the Oslo peace process, both in terms of ideology and in terms of the practical question of whether it would actually bring peace to Israel. Um, that was something that was very, very widely spoken about, very, very widely felt deep feelings uh, on both sides. That is not the case here. Um, it, the Israeli public as a whole is a majority of them is against um, uh, what is termed the, the legal reforms that are proposed by the government. Um, and those that are coming out to demonstrate are against the proposals. On the other side, um, the mass of the public that votes for the parties in the current coalition, for them, um, the idea of legal reforms is not central to the reasons why they vote for right-wing parties. Um, it's not that some of them may be indifferent, many may be in favour, but it's not a critical issue for them. Um, in this case, it's much more about an elite-driven agenda um, of... Uh, right-wing activists and right-wing MKs. And these activists and members of the Knesset, particularly on the far right, and even on the far right of the Likud, would not have been in a position to move this agenda forward if the prime minister, Mr. Netanyahu, wasn't in his current legal problems. In the past, he's opposed these reforms, but now he sees them as a way to extricate himself from the court case for corruption that he is currently in. If he wasn't involved in this court case, not only would he be against this, he would not have uh, worked very hard to get the most extreme elements in the coalition, uh, that is Itamar Ben-Gvir and the Jewish Power Party, uh, into the Knesset. Without him and without his brokering of the deal between um, elements of religious Zionism and uh, led by Smotrich and um, the Jewish Power, they would not have got into the Knesset. Uh, ben would not be there. 
More than that, um, if the Likud could go in either direction, in other words, if Netanyahu didn't have this court case over him, then he could easily go with the center and the left and have the right as well. And, and he has his preference would be to be in the center of any government. It's only because the center and the left refuse to be a part of a government led by him while he is on trial um, for corruption. They were happy to serve with him before that. Um, it's only because of that that he is totally dependent on these minority voices. Thank you, Jonathan. Um, perhaps we can touch a little bit on on some of those internal internal dynamics, and particularly on the decision of the religious Zionism ministers to stay away from the the weekend before last cabinet meeting. Um, perhaps first, if you could explain for our listeners what happened and some of the background. And then give us an assessment of what what that episode might tell us about how this coalition is going to function in practice. Um, a week ago, um, the American National Security Advisor was uh, Jake Sullivan was in Israel, and at that point, um, the government, um, led by the Defense Minister from the Likud, uh, um, dismantled a settlement which is illegal according to Israeli law. And this triggered a coalition crisis because on the one hand, traditionally, anything that happens in the West Bank, in the 60% of it, the West Bank that's under full Israeli control, Area C, comes under the authority of the Israeli army, of the IDF, and therefore the defense minister. However, in the coalition agreement signed by Netanyahu, he gave control over the settlers and the settlements primarily to a deputy minister in that in the defense ministry, uh, the head of the religious Zionist party, Smotrich. And he um, is against the evacuation of any settlements, uh, illegal or legal, because his objective is to make the transfer of Area C impossible in the future and thereby prevent the creation of a Palestinian state. So when Mr. Netanyahu sided with the defense minister and not with Smotrich, uh, in protest, the religious Zionist members of the government um, uh, boycotted the cabinet meeting. However, I don't think that we should um, read too much into this in terms of the stability of the coalition. Um, Mr. Netanyahu has nowhere else to go. He has no alternative government. And under any other scenario, religious Zionism will have a smallest fraction of the power and influence that they have in this government, which is a unique opportunity for them because of the weakness of the prime minister. So I don't think that this is going to trigger um, a collapse of the government, certainly not in the short term. I think while in the short term, Mr. Netanyahu sided with the defense minister in order not to create a crisis in relations with the US and embarrass the national security advisor. Um, 
he will try to decide not to decide and he will try to blur who exactly has the authority and and try not to have to make a decision on this but ultimately this issue is of secondary importance to the Likud of secondary importance to the prime minister and of secondary importance to many people in the coalition for whom the legal revolution is more important and so I expect that this issue itself is unlikely to cause any serious coalition problems, at least in the short term. The only exception could be that Itamar Ben-Gvir, who is less of a stable political actor and less pragmatic than Smotrich, though perhaps um, there is not much of a difference in their views, um, may use this in the future as an issue to allow him to pull out the government in a way that pleases his supporters. Thank you, Jonathan. Let's let's turn to that legal revolution, to the, the unavoidable question of judicial reform. Um, I'd like first to discuss the recent events with Aye Derry. What's your feeling on, on what the government thinks is possible for him? Will, will they try to exclude the cabinet from the purview of the Supreme Court and bring him back? Well, what they did this time is they tried to um, get him into the cabinet without passing a law. And this meant that it was struck down by a, a, a massive majority in the Supreme Court as being extremely unreasonable since Derry had agreed that, first of all, the law is that he can't serve in the uh, cabinet because he's been... Uh, found guilty of corruption within the last seven years. And secondly, he basically promised at the end of his trial in return for not going to prison that he would abide by that. Um, so when he was rejected, in principle, um, the government now will, what they will do, what they can do is to try and pass a new law that would permit him to serve. And that would cause a constitutional crisis because presumably the Supreme Court would rule that this is in contradiction with the existing basic laws. The only issue is that the coalition doesn't want to fight the issue of judicial reform on the basis of a personal favor to a convicted Haredi politician. So I think that they will put off the dairy issue um, until after the big fights on the uh, judicial reform. I don't think they'll want to push that first and foremost. And again, it's not as if Shas has an alternative to being in this coalition that is anywhere near as good. So I expect them to grumble, but to take it. Thank you. I mean, let's move to some of the some of the uh, wider reforms then. What's your assessment on where we'll end up here? We know President Herzog is mediating. Um, Justice Minister Levine has talked about some flexibility from his original proposals, but at the moment, the central reform issues on the override, on reasonability, on the appointment of judges and the independence of legal advisors really are dividing people. Where does this end, do you think? Okay, so I think we need to distinguish between two types of issue here. 
one which can genuinely be called um, a question of legal reform that's legitimate. And that is, under what circumstance should the Knesset, the Israeli parliament, be able to overturn a Supreme Court decision that strikes down a law because it contradicts Israel's basic laws, which are like its constitution? That, in principle, is a legitimate question. The other um, aspects of the reform that I will come to in a moment uh, cause severe damage and ultimately will undermine the independence of the judiciary in Israel and therefore pose a direct threat to Israel as a democracy. Perhaps not tomorrow, but certainly in the medium term. So taking that, the legitimate issue of when you can overturn a Supreme Court uh, decision on a law, there is room for compromise. The government is proposing that this be possible with a simple 61 out of 120 majority in the Knesset. Were they to increase that to a two-thirds majority, for example, say 80 out of 120, I think that that compromise is possible. In other words, there is nothing undemocratic or threatening the independence of the judiciary in changing uh, the threshold and allowing the parliament, since Israel is a parliamentary democracy, more of a say in the balance between the two branches of government. That's a legitimate debate. And therefore I think compromise on that um, can be achieved. On the other issues, there are two issues that can be finessed, even though they are far more problematic. The first one is the idea that legal advisors to ministries will uh, answer and be appoint answer to and be appointed by their ministers, as opposed to being responsible. Um, uh, to the uh, judiciary and to the judicial authorities. So I don't see that happening in the short term. So even though that is a fundamental threat uh, to um, the rule of law by weakening oversight uh, over government, and government ministries, making them judge over their own houses, um, it can be put off. I think that that is something that uh, the government can push off till later. The third issue, which is that the government is seeking to remove the Supreme Court's ability to strike down um, uh, administrative elements of the law on the basis that they are extremely unreasonable. So for example, a law was passed in the Knesset which said that anyone who owns a car can't receive unemployment benefit. And that was struck down as unreasonable. Um, however, it, that is not to do with Israel's basic laws, which means that if the Knesset then passes another law in a slightly different way, they can overrule that. So again, I think the reasonableness one 
can basically stay without causing uh, either side to um, block any compromise. In other words, I think reasonableness is something the government of Israel can live with. The real difficulty, and I think the most difficult issue, is the one about how judges are appointed. Because at present, the committee that appoints judges is balanced between legal professionals, members of the Knesset who aren't members of the government, and members of the government. None of these parties has an absolute majority, so they must compromise and the, the candidate must be a consensual one. And that, again, maintains the independence of the judiciary, but allows for a certain amount of influence of um, the people of Israel through their representatives. So it's, it's a balanced uh, system, and, and I think it's, it's a good one. Um, what the government wants to do is to basically, when you add it all up, in practice, give the government the ability uh, to control the appointment of judges in a much, much more powerful and clear way. And I think that that is not an issue on which there can be compromise. Um, so someone will have to back down. Um, and it will be interesting to see where we go on this. Thank you, Jonathan. I mean, on a related sort of party political point, we've seen some of some of the most sort of vehement critics of, of the reforms have been you know, formerly senior Likudniks. But how united is, is a sort of modern Likud on, on the question of uh, of these these uh, reforms? And, and in general, how united is it? Are those who are unhappy at being sidelined during coalition negotiations still seething or have they have they sort of resigned themselves to things now? Okay, so the first thing we need to look at is what's happened to the Likud since Netanyahu's court case um, became the dominant factor in party politics, which is since about 2015, 2016. Um, and what's happened is that those who take a broadly liberal democratic approach to Israel's internal government and the rule of law is important to them, the ideological grandchildren of Menachem Begin uh, and co, they've basically left the Likud, nearly all of them, at various stages because of Mr Netanyahu and because of his refusal to do what he told Prime Minister Olmer to do when he was indicted, which is step down as Prime Minister. They feel they felt it was a, a fundamental um, conflict of interest. Now, there are some voices in the Likud that are still moderate on this question and would favour a compromise and might even vote against um, a pure proposal as currently proposed by the coalition without compromises, they might vote against it. So we're looking at Yuli Edelstein, the, the former speaker, and someone like Gila Gamliel. Whether there is enough of them on their own to stop the thing going through is another question. Um, 
The other issue is those people in the Likud who are not particularly bothered either way about the legal reforms, but they are greatly disappointed with the portfolios that they received in this government. Because Mr. Netanyahu is so dependent on the far right and the, the Haredim, the ultra-Orthodox, because he doesn't have an alternative coalition, he has had to give them a lot of plum positions. And this has caused many people in the Likud, more senior people, to feel disgruntled. They know that without Mr. Netanyahu, they would be in a position to form a government either with the right or the centre-left or both, and that would give them a better bargaining position, and that would mean that they would have more and better portfolios, ministries within the government. So there is certainly bad feeling towards Netanyahu in the Likud. However, Mr. Netanyahu is dominant in the party, he is by far the most popular leader on the right with the public. And so a mass revolt against what he has placed as a central issue is unlikely. Um, and so that is why it is a very serious issue and, and could really threaten here and um, the foundations of Israeli democracy. Thank you, Jonathan. And I mean, just touching on that, how do you, what's your take on that, con the continued uh, public popularity of Mr. Netanyahu? Well, you know, it's in Israel, um, Mr. Netanyahu is considered the best candidate for prime minister compared to others, but he still doesn't have more than a 30% approval rating. So, it's less about the breadth of his um, appeal with the public and more about the fact that he um, will give more to his coalition partners on the far right and the ultra-Orthodox than any other potential leader of the league could, and that he remains the most popular leader among Likud voters. And that combination is the critical political foundation of his power. Thank you. Let's let's turn to those who really are pushing back uh, against these reforms, the protest movement. The large numbers who've gathered in, in Tel Aviv and elsewhere the last few weekends obviously take the headlines in global coverage. Uh, my first question would be, I mean, how much staying power you feel this movement has? But perhaps more importantly, does, does, does the answer to this depend on how successful it can be in bringing both business and labour on board. Perhaps you could explain for our listeners the significance, or, or not perhaps, sure. of recent announcements from tech companies and what the current position of the Histofruit, Israel's largest union is. Okay, so it's a little bit misleading to call it a protest movement. Um, it's not organised in that way, and it's very, very disparate. Um, so it's average citizens um, from all ages, all over the country, um, who are doing this. And it's, it's 
something which brings them together, but they're, they're coming together often from different angles. And so there aren't that many messages that unite them on this, though it's clear they're against it. So, you know, rather than thinking of this as something like the 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 protests that you sometimes see against capitalism in in western countries and things like that it's not that kind of protest it's one where your grandma your your, your daughter and your neighbor uh might turn up to so that's the first thing the second thing is you know people are continuing to turn out in large numbers and i think they will continue to do so the issue, however, is, is how effective this is, because even if 100,000 people or more turn out every week, that is not a threat to the government. There will not be mass violence and a mass rebellion. So from the point of view of a government, which has a large majority for Israeli standards in the parliament, in the Knesset, this is in some ways a safety valve. It's an easy way for people to protest. It doesn't actually affect them. And this is why you're right to point to the importance of business, high tech and the historical unions uh, in, as affecting the effectiveness of the movement, um, of the protests, because business and high tech have a status in Israel that means that when they say that it's going to severely damage the Israeli economy. When two former governors of the Bank of Israel appointed by Netanyahu and former director generals of the finance ministry say this, that not only carries weight with people who aren't, who don't necessarily have a clear ideological position on this. They don't really understand the ins and outs. They don't have a strong view, but they they will start to feel what is the point if this is going to damage me uh, and damage uh, the Israeli economy and my prospects. And more than that, Netanyahu's political popularity is in part built on the perception that he has done a great job for the Israeli economy. And this therefore would damage his political standing. And the Histad root can damage Mr. Netanyahu's image as a successful political leader because if large parts of the economy, like many, many people go on strike and cause severe disruption to Israel, then this is going to clearly impose a price and people will also ask, is it worth it? And it will put Mr. Netanyahu in a difficult position because if he allows these strikes to go on without forcibly stopping them, then that damages his standing. And if he uses force to stop them, then that will really undermine his the image that he's trying to project that these reforms are not anti-democratic and will make him look more like Erdogan in Turkey um, than, um, say, uh, a, a Republican, a, a non-Trumpist Republican in the United States. Thank you, Jonathan. Um, I'd like to touch on, on last week's appalling terror attacks in Jerusalem and one aspect specifically. Much of the coverage here in the UK has pointed to the new government as being an exacerbating or, or stimulating factor in 
in recent violence. Could you put that in a bit of context for us? So um, the Israeli Defense Forces have been saying for, for over a year that the situation in the territories, the political situation is uh, heating up and that the danger of a conflagration of violence on a mass level is growing the whole time. And this was growing during a very moderate government in Israel, which was the first to contain uh, a Muslim Arab uh, party um, where there was no, you know, the, the opposite of incitement and and there was no 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 reason from Israel to to, to think that um, Israel was causing anything. The new government, though, has no doubt um, created circumstances where it is far, far easier for extremists to stir things up. Until now, the main reason for the likelihood of violence in the territories was that actually, if you were living under Hamas in Gaza, you had a terrible life. And if you were living under the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank, your reality was that your quality of life and the quality of governance was going down all the time. The regime there under Abbas was becoming more and more authoritarian, more and more arbitrary, and um, more and more corrupt. And so there was no horizon externally or internally. Now, the way that the IDF tried to manage that was by trying to allow as many Palestinians as safely and as possible to come and work in Israel to maintain at least an economic situation that um, weakens the will um, for violence. And, and in principle, that strategy of managing the conflict is one that Mr. Netanyahu is very much in favor of. The problem for him and for this government is that his partners on the far right would actually like to stir things up because that will provide them with an opportunity to take um, for, for greater legitimacy for cracking down in a harder way as they would like. So when Mr. Benvir goes up to the Temple Mount, he's not only going there to show a Jewish connection with the Temple Mount, he's going there knowing that this is going to provide an opportunity for Islamist extremists in the West Bank um, to mobilize the public um, by claiming that, that the Jews are going to blow up or take over the, the Dome of the Rock and the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Um, and the fact that this government's far-right coalition partners wants to take a much softer line on illegal settler violence against Palestinians and illegal acts by Israeli soldiers when they occur against Palestinians um, is only going to add to the um, opportunities for the extreme uh, Islamist forces in the West Bank to take the opportunity to stir things up and try and trigger uh, mass violence on a scale that we haven't seen for almost 20 years.
Thank you, Jonathan. Let's move to, to foreign policy. Um, what, what do you assess the new government's priorities of being in this area and, and their chances of success? So I think we can point to a number of things. I think Mr. Netanyahu wants to manage the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Um, in other words, just keep it quiet. His partners would like, on the far right, would like to annex the West Bank. They would, at the maximum and at the minimum, they would like to increase settlement activity in 60% of the West Bank area C under full Israeli control to thereby prevent in future a two-state solution or the partition of the land of Israel. Um, I think the chances that they will achieve either of those goals is low um, because at the end of the day, Mr. Netanyahu will has other priorities on foreign policy and they are to manage the conflict so that it doesn't explode and therefore keep American support on side for what for him is and for Israel is the central issue, which is dealing with the fact that the Iranian nuclear nuclear weapons program is nearing a place where it will be able to deploy uh, nuclear weapons. And Mr. Netanyahu's major objective is to prevent that happening. And to really be successful in that, he needs American support. And Mr. President Biden is different from President Obama in that he has stated previously that if Israel was to get drawn into a conflict with Iran, you know, America would be there. Um, and that is a that is a it's not the same as somebody who supports. Mr. Netanyahu's tougher line against the uh, nuclear agreement. But since that agreement shows no prospect of being revived, it is very significant. And I think that Mr. Netanyahu won't want to um, damage what could be um, a very, very useful partnership with the president. And I think it's significant in this regard that despite the great concern in Washington over what's going on domestically in Israel with the legal reforms, and despite their far even more immediate and urgent concerns with uh, what's going on um, with the Palestinians and with the West Bank and things like that, um, nonetheless, last week we had the largest ever military maneuver between Israel and the United States that was um, uh, going through scenarios that would be involved in a conflict between Israel and Iran. And that was a very clear message to Iran, and it should be to us, that whatever the differences um, in the Palestinian sphere and the domestic sphere, on the question of Iran, um, Mr. Netanyahu is likely to get a large degree of support from Washington, not as much as he would like. He's not going to get an American-initiated attack, but he's going to get considerable support. And the fact that Iran is siding with Russia in the Ukraine makes it much, much easier um, for him to 
make the case in Washington. And um, so I think that on that, he's likely um, to be reasonably successful. I think that he would very much like to extend the Abraham Accords to Saudi Arabia. And he is making noises that this could happen. I think that so long as we have a far right government uh, involved in the kind of things that it wants to be involved with in the Palestinian arena, um, and so long as the Americans do not want to reward such a government, and so long as Iran isn't a direct and immediate threat to Saudi Arabia, then I don't see why the Saudis would give such a present to this government. So I think it's unlikely they would achieve this. I think that one big cloud on the horizon for Israel is um, boycott divestments and sanctions, the international court, because one of the things that we mentioned uh, before, and that is the clash between the defense minister and Smotrich over who has control of the settlers and the settlements uh, has wider significance because if those powers are taken away from the defense minister and are understood to be in the process of being civilianized, even if they're not completely civilianized, then the case can be made that um, the occupation is being made permanent. And this is something the Palestinians are promoting in the international arena. And were that to be a conclusion reached by an international court, then that could lead to a process leading the United States and the EU to be pressured into some kind of sanctions. Now, neither the US nor the EU is in a hurry to do anything like that. They're both busy with many, many other things, irrespective of their feelings here or there on the issue. But nonetheless, that is one way in which the far right in the government can threaten Mr. Netanyahu's objective of just keeping things quiet. Thanks, Jonathan. Just, just one, one more question on, on Iran. Um, you mentioned um, Iranian support for Russia. Has that, has that perhaps irreversibly shifted the US and, and E3 diplomacy uh, initiatives on, on, on the Iran nuclear issue? Um, has it finished them for the moment at least? I don't think anything is irrevocable. Um, and, you know, it, 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 in of itself, the Iranians have not been not been willing to go back to the agreement. So it's been a mute point. Um, the, the Iranian position on the Ukraine only strengthens the case of those who say, you know, Iran is not a partner. But having said that, I can envisage a situation where Iran might drop Russia um, and go back to the agreement. For them, it's a, it's a pragmatic issue. It's not an ideological, uh, principled um, alignment. They will do what's ever in their interest. And, and America, which is busy in the Ukraine, might well want to buy time um, to deal with the Ukraine and deal with China and just push off the Iranian uh, question. So I, I wouldn't say that that's 
entirely off the agenda, though I'm not expecting a breakthrough anytime soon. Thanks, Jonathan. And, and one final question on, on the US, um, relating to the, the current state of play within sort of both, both major parties in the US and, and attitudes, positions on Israel. Um, are these changing or, or are we seeing, you know, the upholding of, of previous traditional attitudes? So if we talk about the Republican Party, we can see that over the last 25 years, sympathy and support for Israel has grown dramatically. And while the basis of this support um, is among evangelicals, the reason for the increase is that they perceive a common threat from radical Islam and terrorism to both Israel and the United States. So there things are very stable. The challenge for Israel is in among Democrats. Now, what's happened among Democrats um, can be described as follows. Between 2000 and 2015, Democrats were divided on Israeli policies towards the Palestinians, but they sympathized far, far more with Israel than with the Palestinians. And that only changed when Mr. Netanyahu was seen as taking the Republican side and uh, Trump side in American domestic politics. And so from 2015 until today, when you have the combination of a prime minister seen as pro-Trump and pro-Republican and the most far-right government in Israel for 35 years, then you have a situation where Democrats' sympathy on the question of Israel and the Palestinians is now an even divide between those who sympathize more with Israel and those who sympathize more with the Palestinians. Having said all of that, despite those changes, when Gallup asks, do you have a favorable view of Israel? Uh, or an unfavorable view? And do you have a favorable view of the Palestinian Authority or an unfavorable view? The percentage of Democrats in America who have a favorable view of Israel has not changed significantly over the last 25 years. It's always about two thirds. And the Mount who have a favorable view of the Palestinian Authority ranges from about a fifth to a third. In other words, the fact that Israel is still perceived as a democracy like America is absolutely critical to the stability of Democrats' identification and favorable attitudes to the state of Israel and the people of Israel, even when it, has, it is divided over the government of Israel. Um, in those polls that Gallup do every year, they usually ask about 20 states and all the states that are democracy on balance, the public in America has a favorable view and all those that are not democracies, they have an unfavorable view. And so what is now happening in the domestic arena in Israel regarding the rule of law and the independence of the judiciary poses a serious threat to the perception in the United States of Israel as a democracy. Now that may take time, both in practice in Israel and in perceptions in America to shift. 
But there is no doubt that it is a very serious threat to bipartisan support and identification with Israel among Democrats in the United States. Thank you, Jonathan. Just And finally, um, I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about something which I know will be of great interest to our, our British listeners. And that's the recent conference with which you were heavily involved in honor of the late Chief Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. Well, thank you for asking about that. Um, uh, we are setting up an institute, um, the Jonathan Sachs Institute at Barilan University, and it's going to be a cooperative project between the Department of Political Studies and Jewish Philosophy, but it's going to be based with us in the Department of Political Studies. And that's because what is unique about Jonathan Sachs is that he is able to ground support for liberal democracy in the Jewish religious tradition in a way that relates to the central challenges for politics and society throughout the Western world. And he's able to speak in a language that resonates for Jews and non-Jews, for secular and religious. And that is something that we believe is extremely important in these times, not only in academia, not only in the world at large, but specifically against the background that we've described in Israel, where it is the religious parties that are seen as posing the main threat um, to Israeli democracy. So what we are planning to do is to um, have a series of academic programs at every level. So undergraduate all the way up to MAs and PhDs and an interdisciplinary um, multinational seminar. But perhaps what might be most relevant to this conversation is the BA program we're planning and currently raising money for in democracy, citizenship and leadership, which will consist of um, scholarships for 18 outstanding students, um, um, including the four best Arab students and the four best ultra-Orthodox Haredi students. And aside from their studies, they will intern in organized government organizations or non-government organizations. They will volunteer together. They will dialogue together. We will create an alumni network. And this program will be informed by Jonathan Sachs's concepts of interreligious and intercultural cooperation and coexistence in books like The Home We Build Together. And I think it's particularly important that Rabbi Sachs's um, idea that all human beings are in the image of God and therefore of equal value as a foundation for democracy and human rights, while simultaneously recognizing that the differences, cultural, religious, and otherwise, between different groups only enrich our experience, um, but do require um, the building of trust which is something you do by volunteering together, working together, talking together and studying together. And given that the challenges today in our society are primarily among 
the orthodox and the ultra-orthodox, though it's not necessarily a function of religion. In, in other eras, it's been secular and like fascism and communism. I think it's very appropriate that this program um, will take place at Barilan. Um, the lead singer of U2, Bono, once said that um, Helter Skelter, the song by the Beatles, was stolen by Charles Manson, the cult leader and serial killer. And their job was to take it back for popular music. And in a way, although it's a strange comparison, I think that the Jewish religious tradition has been hijacked by extremists. And it's part of the job of our program to take it back. Thank you, Jonathan, and congratulations on what sounds a fantastic, fantastic endeavour. And thank you for joining us today. You brought our listeners tremendous insight into some of the most pressing issues facing Israel and Israelis at this crucial time. Thank you to our listeners for joining us again, and we'll be back to bring you another Bicom podcast soon. Thanks very much.